0: The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the warmth of this building, and we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to come and talk about great things. We ask your blessing uh, on this time as we talk about the meaning of marriage, the significance of it. We ask your Holy Spirit would come and illumine our, our minds and our hearts. Would you pave the way through any... Hesitations and obstacles we may have as we go into this material. Would you soften our hearts to hear from you that we would be, uh, any sort of pricking that may happen would only be meant to serve to build us up in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. All right. Welcome. If you are, if this is your first time here, a couple of things, and if you've been here before. Um, we changed things around in this space. I don't know if you can tell. The back pew is gone. And I'm super excited about that because that means next week we will have coffee in this space. Yay! Yay! So you can just come straight here. And I know that can be a uh, challenge going over there and then coming back over here. I think that's why a lot of people will kind of straggle in. Maybe not, I don't know. But we'll have coffee here. Oh no, I guarantee you you won't be the last one, Drew, don't worry. Um, so we'll have that, and up there you will see a, a sign-in, but you'll see a few things. You'll see the syllabus, what we're doing. All of this will be online if it's not there already. <clears throat> we have uh, kind of the outline of where, what we'll be talking about today, as well as some discussion questions for you, if you're married and your spouse to talk about in the privacy of your own home. Uh, if you missed last week... We recorded it, it will be up there, um, or actually we didn't record it, I had to go back and do the recording, but I sent it out, and it will be online, and basically we just went over what my hopes are in this class. So uh, it was more of kind of talking about what the syllabus is, but this is going. we've got 45 minutes together, we start right at 9.30, end at 10.15, and we're gonna stick to that and be done and go um, during that time. So it's not gonna be super conducive to discussion. That, as I've said, is why I'm giving discussion questions. to Take this home, help you think, ponder, journal, discuss with your spouse. Hey y'all, come on in, glad you're here. If you're just coming in, which a number of folks did, we will have coffee here next week, right here in this building. So super excited, you don't have to go next door for that, which is great. Most of the weeks, we are looking at only one chapter. This week we are doing two chapters, And a bit of the word on the material. This course is called The Meaning of Marriage, taken from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. But, as I said last time, there are pros and cons of every kind of teacher, every kind of book, their strengths and weaknesses. This is written by a pastor who planted a church in Manhattan. Uh, He's very knowledgeable, uh, very familiar with the Bible, 30 years pastoral experience. This is the other book that we are going to be looking at, and it's a lot shorter, but it's written by another man who received his uh, master's degree, master's of divinity, from the same seminary that I went to in Philadelphia, and he also went on to get a doctorate in counseling and psychology at Michigan State University. So I thought it would be fun and helpful, since I'm excited about the material, uh, to choose both of these and look at them, and what I think each of them do, they both have strengths in their own, and you'll see that as it comes out. In fact, well, today was a little interesting. This one, I thought would be a little more practical, and the first chapter is far more theological and heady than the pastor, right? so that was kind of interesting, but trust me, he goes into a lot of counseling, psychological, relational dynamics that are really good in this book. You can find these online, uh, the Intimate Mystery by Dan Allender you can find either at the Seattle School of Counseling and Psychology or on Amazon. If you don't like Amazon, you can find it other Christian books, that sort of thing. Uh, meaning of Marriage, you can find it pretty much anywhere online. This week, The Meaning of Marriage. We have way too much. What I'm going to do is kind of go through Keller's material, things I found interesting, try to hit the high points, then go into uh, the, the chapter on the Intimate Mystery as well. And we're really going to hopefully take some time to go through Genesis chapter 2 in the Bibles that are hopefully in your pew or maybe you brought one or have one on your phone. So I encourage you, if you have a copy of the book, follow along. There are a few things in here that I'll be quoting from at length, and if it helps you to read as I quote, that is great. But you'll see, hopefully you have the outline of, of kind of what the chapters talked about. They're all on the back table if you don't have those. So, interestingly enough, as I said, Keller talks a, hes a pastor, and so you think a lot of—he's uh, going to talk about the Bible. He does a lot of what's called apologetics, or defending the Bible's teaching. And to do that, he dives right in on the nerves and the pressure points of what marriage is, I think, in our world today. And there are some really helpful things that he looks at in the very first chapter. The first thing he talks about is that marriage seems to be on the decline in our— uh, in our society today. There are a number of reasons why he talks about marriage being on decline. He quotes from Chris Rock's famous line, uh, you can be single and lonely, or you can be married and bored. That was what the comedian Chris Rock said, and uh, that is what he's trying to say, uh, Keller's trying to talk about, why is that? Why do people think that way? And he gives three major misconceptions about uh, the decline of marriage, why, why this is sort of happening. And he, he begins with, by a lot of people, as they're preparing to get married, they, they're searching for a potential partner, and they're looking for these things, compatibility and chemistry. And so what they do, the, the decline of marriage has also seen a sharp rise in cohabitation. So he talks a lot about cohabitation in the first chapter here. And it's interesting that the studies show, he has so many... Uh, so much data and so many uh, scientific studies that he points to. I'm just going to hit a few of them. But the studies do show that if you cohabitate before you get married, you have a higher rate of divorce than those who don't cohabitate and get married. That throws a lot of people off because, again, you think... I remember working in uh, just the secular world and I was dating at the time and uh, with like 40, 50, 60-year-old women mostly in this office job. They did not understand why I would not cohabitate or why I would not have sex before married. They thought it was – actually, they were very, very concerned for me, which is fascinating. They were saying, you know, how are you possibly going to know if you're compatible? How are you possibly going to know if this is going to work? You need to figure out as much as you can about this person beforehand to see if they are a compatible good fit. Well, uh, the studies show that that thinking, actually, those who who kind of go that route and cohabitate for that end – They actually get ended up. They end up getting divorced at a far higher rate than those who don't cohabitate. Second thing, there's this misconception that you need to be financially secure. There's there's another study that showed actually the incredible economic benefits of marriage. Marriage is like a shock absorber. You know, Um, it's one of these things through the highs and lows of life, you can kind of rely on your partner. There's also he talks about (laughs) if you've been married for any length of time, you know the what he calls marital social norms that married couples will hold one another to a higher level of expectation than if they were not married. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. More than your friends, more than your family even. Your spouse has the power to influence what you do, and to hold you to a very high standard. So interestingly enough, that produces more in individuals. that go and accomplish more, tend to. And so a study showed that um, individuals who were continuously married had 75% more wealth at retirement than individuals who never married or those who divorced and never remarried. 75% more wealth at retirement. The third misconception is this, uh, I think, and this is probably the most pertinent one, There's this false perception of people in marriage. It goes back to that Chris Rock quote that you can either be single and lonely or married and bored. And so what he talks about is the perception that many people are just unhappy or bored in their marriage. Uh, That also goes – the stats just go against that. 61 – he says 61 to 62 percent of people say they actually have a very happy marriage. That is – I mean, that's almost two-thirds. That is more than what you'd expect if you just looked at Twitter or tuned in on the news, right? I mean, it's just not kind of the the parlance of how we talk about marriage today. So he says right off the bat, uh, the, despite the decline of married people, the majority of folks still today want to be married, interestingly enough. And married folks are happier than those who are, these are just studies that he's citing, Married folks are happier than those who are single, divorced, or cohabitating, interestingly enough. This is all secular uh, science. Those who are unhappy in their marriage will likely become happy if they stay in it for another five years, is what uh, one of the studies showed. He's citing, I think, the University of Virginia's institute on the, – the National Marriage Project is what he's looking at, and he takes a lot of his statistics from – that UVA study, and so, yeah, um, and the studies show as well children who grew up with a married father and a mother, who they have at least two to three times more of a positive life outcome happening than those who do not come from a father-mother married home, which is fascinating. So uh, he goes into, mostly after talking about the decline, the history of marriage, and he cites that we are, this is, I mean, the decline, it's, we have a lot of pessimism about marriage today. This was shocking to me. Less than one-third of high school senior girls, and only slightly more than a third of high school senior boys, believe that marriage is more beneficial than, to individuals than the alternative. About 33% of high school seniors think that marriage is actually going to be more beneficial as individuals than any other sort of life Status, which is deeply pessimistic about, I and mean, that's 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 very alarming. That was in 2001 that he's citing. So, and he writes he writes in 2011. So I think that there's probably only been greater rise in those numbers. There is a significant shift that happened in the last. You know, one of the books, if you were in the parenting class or if you've heard me talk at all, I've cited Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self anybody heard of that book or heard me talk about that book, I've mentioned it a lot, there's a shorter version called The Strange New World what he's saying is we are in this era that is very very unique it's very different than most of what human history has done and it kind of outlines historically how we ended up to this strange world that we're in now but to distill all that for what happens in what what this means for marriage and what is happening with the institution of marriage Keller talks about the fact that you have this shift ever since the Enlightenment to where it no longer is the highest value kind of denying your own individual rights and seeking the good of whatever your duty is to society or seeking the good of a relationship, something outside of yourself. That was kind of how most of human history functioned, especially with regards to marriage. Ever since the Enlightenment, that's only been more and more and more not the case, where all of a sudden you have, it's all about individual fulfillment. John Witt Jr. says this, contrasting kind of the older view of marriage with this shift that has happened. You know, you can look to the sexual revolution in the late 20th century, even to where we are today, but he says, a permanent so older views of marriage saw that marriage was a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection, But this is now slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage that's being defined as a terminal, so something that can end whenever you want, a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual persons. Uh, So this is definitely something that is very new. No longer is life about uh, submitting yourself to your social role, but it's all about self fulfillment, right? Finding your own joy and satisfaction. So it's no longer denying yourself. It's all about uh, self-actualization. Uh, and there's an article that he cites in the New York Times where Tara Parker Pope uh, calls today's marriages the me-marriage. This is really interesting. This is on page where, page 22? I have the um, paperback so I hope that the page numbers are still the same for you guys. But This is what she says about modern marriage. <clears throat> the notion that the best marriages are those that seem that bring private satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Well, not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain their valued goals. It doesn't sound that pronounced, but it is a a subtle shift there where it's now, we're looking for somebody else who's going to ultimately make me happy, somebody who's going to make me realize my true fulfillment. That's what marriage is all about today. What's crazy, is that uh, this is a crushing burden, ultimately, on a spouse. (laughs) Marriage was not meant to be like this. So uh, it leaves us, what he says, trapped between the unrealistic longings of our heart for this sort of ideal person, but with terrible fears about marriage because it seems almost impossible because it is impossible. And we know it's impossible to actually find somebody who can, Possibly do that. So we look, we place too much on the person of marriage, and in the sense, we actually don't put enough by looking by making marriage into this kind of make me into the person that I want to become. Um, but don't try to infringe upon my rights. Don't try to change me. All this. This is what he he looked at a study about. What does it mean? Uh, to find a compatible soulmate. So that's, that's what marriage is all about now. Is you, you've got to find your compatibility partner. You've got to find your soulmate. <clears throat> and so there was this study done why men won't commit, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. I think these apply both to men and women, but he, this was a study looking specifically at men. The top... Uh, understandings or definitions of of what does compatibility actually mean? What are you looking for when you say that? And this is what the study showed. is two things. First, compatibility or your soulmate was defined as physical attractiveness or sexual chemistry. So that's what your soulmate is. That you have good sex or that you're physically attractive. Um, Second thing, that wasn't actually the number one thing that the men defined as uh, compatibility. They, they said that the number one thing that they were looking for in a soulmate was finding somebody who's not going to change you, but take you as you are. That is interesting. A compatibility partner. I want you to be a hot and wonderful and interesting and, and great but, and completely content with life, so much so that you're not looking to me for anything. You're not going to make any claims on me as a person. This is more or less kind of how we've approached marriage today uh, is that we're looking for somebody, I think the average person out there is kind of looking for somebody like that whether they would put it that way, I doubt but this is kind of what's going on in the subconscious. What's interesting about these guys who are saying that's what compatibility is, is it's a reflection of what like, marriage used to be all about changing men from in this sort of thinking to making them virtuous people and this, this is about men but I think it's about both men and women We are looking for somebody who's not gonna make any, not gonna change us at all. But marriage is definitely meant to change you. That's one of the whole purposes. That's one of the meanings of marriage is that it's absolutely going to change you. And he talks about how in history, this older view of traditional marriage, it was seen like a school. It was where you went to be trained and that it it would make you into a more virtuous person. And that these people who are reflecting that, they're, they're kind of showing the attitudes and attributes that would have been, yeah, you need to be married. If that's what you're looking for, you're clearly not the kind of, like, ultimate masculine person. He talked about masculinity, the fact that true masculinity was something very different than kind of the sexual conquest alpha male that a lot of people think about today. Uh, he says... This – or actually, this is uh, on page yeah, 26. For most of Western history, the primary and most valued characteristic of manhood was self-mastery. A man who ruled and ex- – or who indulged in self-excessive in excessive eating, drinking, sleeping, or sex, who failed to rule himself, was considered unfit to rule his household or mu- much less outside in society. So… Uh, Masculinity has been found wanting because we have, in large part, changed what we thought marriage to be. And with the rise of cohabitation, this is really interesting, the effect on men. This is what he talks about on page 25. Cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and to continue to look around for perhaps a better partner. So, unfortunately, you're getting all the, the, quote, benefits of a, a, a wife, but you have – it's not actually doing anything to you. You're not being demanded to change. It's not the school that God was meaning this relationship to change you in. And I don't think a lot of people realize when they go to cohabitate that they're actually falling way short of, like, the um, – The design that God wanted to actually change and transform their lives. So he says this is all, the state that he says our culture is at is towards marriage. We have, we're we're a pessimistic idealism, which is kind of an ironic, oxymoronic thing to say. On the one hand, we are way too idealistic about the spouse that we're looking for. We're looking, as I said, for somebody who really doesn't exist, who's perfect in every way and doesn't make any claim on you. But we're also incredibly because of that, I think, pessimistic about marriage. And there's a number of ways that, that we can kind of respond to it, but I think, he's, I think he's right when he says that the main response is fear. We're afraid and so we distance ourselves. It's really interesting. One of the, one of the ways that he said that we distance ourselves is by having such a high level of pickiness in dating and courtship that we basically keep everybody at a glance. This is one of the things he cited from uh, a New York Times article by John Tierney called Picky Picky Picky. Uh, and it was basically how people who are dating have like a flaw that it's called. This is a page 29. These are some of the things that uh, the reason single friends had given up on their dating relationships. Listen to some of this. He missed, or she mispronounced Goheath, which I probably just did. How could I take him seriously after seeing the road less traveled on his bookshelf? If she would just lose seven pounds. (laughs) Sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm, and he wears those short black socks. Well, it started out great. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. These are some of the reasons that he has heard. Uh, this is not Keller, but in John uh, Tierney's humorous article, some of the reasons why people are not getting married. See, it's all it's all ruse. What they really want is they don't want to get so close to somebody who's flawed and bind themselves to them. They don't want to actually be married uh, because it's quite fearful to find what you're actually what you want is somebody so perfect. Uh, but if you actually nobody out there is actually like that, and so. I love the, the Lewis quote that he says that if you love anything at all, it's going to require risk. It's going to require vulnerability. And if you – Lewis talks about it, if you love anything, you have the possibility of your heart being broken. And this is all, I think, just a smokescreen of keeping your heart preserved and intact by citing ridiculous, <coughs> ridiculous excuses not to, to date somebody. Now, um, there are important things that we'll talk about in a little bit how do you figure out dating and who's a good partner, that sort of thing. So uh, this is he tra- This is all the social commentary. It's kind of where it comes to an end at this point. He transitions. What does the Bible actually say about uh, marriage? And this is the startling thing. is says you never marry the right person. The whole concept of, oh, there's the one out there. No, 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 no. The Bible says you never marry the right person. And if you have this kind of thinking that you got to find somebody who's compatible and who's your soulmate. Even if not, they're perfectly compatible. At least they should be somewhat compatible. Uh, and if, it, if they were truly functionally compatible, it wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be hard at all. And he, he, he asked as a pastor, he's like, well, why is that the case? Why, why do you believe that? You know, if you were in baseball... You would say, well, it shouldn't be hard to hit a home run or it shouldn't be hard to have a hole in one in golf or something like that. It's a ridiculous statement. It's like, well, this is love. This isn't work or sports or something like that. This is, this is something that's meant to just go naturally. But I'm going to go ahead and read in a lengthy quote on 32 and 33 from Duke University professor Stanley Hauerwas that says, no two people are compatible. This is what he says. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption that there is just someone right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry first the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we enter into it. The primary problem is learning how to live and care for the stranger whom you find yourself married to. Now, he's speaking quite directly and putting his finger on the nerve of the culture. And he Keller acknowledges that. He says, now there are some people who are really, really wrong to marry. So don't just hear, well everybody's wrong, so I can marry whoever No, that's not what he's that's not what he's getting at. There are some people who are really, really wrong. Uh, but this idea that you're gonna find that perfect compatible person and then all of a sudden you'll be fulfilled is an illusion. So get over it is what he's talking about. Uh, <clears throat> let's see here. So he goes on to talk about that. Yeah, this is this is going to be hard. This is something that requires sacrifice because you're learning to love somebody that you is different than you married on on the wedding day, and that's always people are always going to be in flux and changing, whether new circumstances. But but recognizing that people are always always changing, always growing, and he says that this was a quote on forty that doesn't relate to that, but I found it kind of interesting. There's never been a culture or a century that we know of in which marriage was not central to human life. That sounds like a re- it? that sounds really audacious to say. So I looked up the footnote. There are a lot of endnotes in, in this book, by the way. But he says this is, sounds controversial, but it actually isn't. It's true that in every human civilization, they talk about prehistory, but going all the way back for the length that humans have known one another... Marriage has always played a central role in human society, which is fascinating. So the point is, marriage isn't going anywhere. And even though the numbers of married folks today have fallen, you look at the people who want to be married, young folks who say they want to be married, even those high school people who say that it's, you know, not as good as individuals, they still want to be married. That's the ironic thing, is the desire for marriage is not going away, despite these kind of crazy, pessimistic views of it. So... Uh, he talks about the fact that we all long for it. We are probably putting on way too much pressure for the spouse that we're looking for. We probably assume way too less of what marriage was created to be, that we just want something that's not going to change us, but God's created it for something so much greater than that. And then he starts to finally get into what the, the secret of marriage is. He t- that's what the chapter title is, The Secret of Marriage. This is on page... Forty-one. The great secret uh, is that marriage is meant to be a picture of God's love for His people. Marriage is a picture, a glimpse of the gospel, is what He talks about, uh, and that we we still long for it. Even uh, and we'll talk about Genesis two when we get to Allender's book. But when Adam is created, he kind of has this cry of, "At last, I've." found what I've been looking for. And so we long for it. But Genesis 3, which follows Genesis 2, shows that everything in life has been marred and broken by sin and that we are all bent inwards on ourselves. And the mystery of marriage points to the gospel that uh, not just that it's about God's love for his people, but it, it fuels how you're supposed to have a good marriage. That the gospel is God who had infinite rights gave them up, and left the amazing riches of heaven not to claim his own rights, but to serve, to become the lowliest of servants, to go to the point of dying for his beloved, giving up his individual rights to love the good of the other. That is what the secret of marriage, Keller says, is. Uh, and in this, there he, he says strongly that there are no false choices. Often we think, that uh, you can either deny your interests for the good of others. That was kind of how traditional marriage, uh, older societies functioned, that you have a societal duty, and so therefore you have to live into that, deny yourself. Or the modern understanding of marriage, that you're to assert your individual rights and therefore find fulfillment. He's saying that's a false choice to have to choose between these two because it's in actually denying yourself yourself Giving up your rights for the good of another in this bond of marriage, that you find uh, fulfillment, actually. You find joy. You find what you were made for. So let me close with what he says on 44 and 45, because this was two, this is actually quite long. It's two paragraphs, but it's really, really important. The reason that marriage is so painful yet so wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is also painful and wonderful at the same time. The gospel is this, that we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our true flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that it really—that we can't really hear it. God's love in Jesus, however, is marked both by radical truthfulness about who we are, yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to turn from our sinful ways. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. He says the hard times of marriage drive us to experience more of this transforming love of God. But a good marriage will also be a place where we experience more of this kind of transforming love at a human level. The gospel can fill our hearts with God's love so that you can handle it when your spouse fails to love you as he or she should. That frees us to see our spouse's sins and flaws all the way to the very bottom and to speak of them and yet still love and accept our spouse fully. And when by the power of the gospel our spouse experiences that same kind of truthful yet committed love, It enables our spouses to show us the same kind of transforming love when the time comes for it. So, hopefully you see, there is, the secret is all about the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ for his people in the good news of the gospel. Moving to Allender's, uh, real quickly, it's it's a lot shorter. What we're going to do, go ahead and get out Genesis chapter 2. Because there we're going to actually see kind of the the meaning of what marriage was for. And I want to draw your attention to a few things in this. And when we look at Genesis 2, I'm going to be summarizing some of what, what Allender said. So Genesis chapter 2, I'm reading from the ESV. Let's start in verse 5. Genesis chapter two, verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made so uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil skip down to verse 15 now the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall die. You shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now the, out of the ground the Lord brought from every, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called each living creature that was its name the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to the beasts of the field but for adam there was no helper there was not found a helper fit for him so the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up its place uh, it, with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man When he had made into a woman, he brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there's so much that could be said in this, but the purpose, what's the whole point? What's the the point of marriage? Well, there was a point that God created man. And that point is the same for for women. It actually is, is to work and care for the creation. That God has made both men and women, and we read this in Genesis 1, He made both of them in His image. Equal value, equal worth. And He gave them a task to have dominion over the creation, to be God's representative rulers in the world. That was the task of man. And in Genesis 2, we see that man is put in this garden, and even before sin gets there, it's not good. And this is one of the things, Allender doesn't say this in the book, but it's amazing to think about. God created something. He created a person and the remarkable humility of God to make a man and to to have, it be, uh, to have the person not be completely fulfilled in God alone. Did you catch that? Like, man is... He's with God in the garden, but even God says this isn't as it should be. What a remarkable sense of humility that God would even create such a thing. Uh, so man's alone, and what's the solution? He ha- I mean, he has not just you know, working a garden. There's so much more I want to talk about to that. Uh, there's untapped potential in the world that men are called, men and women are called to cultivate and to create, and that is a reflection of God's call to every human being— And men and women are to play an equal role in that. And that's part of what there's... This helper is not subordination language. This helper is the same language that is used of God the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. And if you say, well, the Holy Spirit or Jesus is subordinate to the Father, that's heresy. So don't be a heretic. Both men and women are absolutely equal. And they have a vital role to play even though it says that she is meant to help in this wondrous calling to help create and cultivate the creation. But you can imagine the scene, they're there in the garden, and God is bringing forth these animals. You know, there's a need. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. And then he starts bringing all the beasts to the field. And Adam, it's like, okay, start with A, Ardvar. All right, the man's like, not what I was hoping for. You know, and then B, like baboon, still no. Okay, so keep going down. He names all the creatures, and it's not... There was not a helper fit. There's not a helper fit. And then he gets to this point uh, where finally God causes him to sleep, takes out a rib, and he makes woman out of the rib. And I'll have a quote that I've got to look up here because it's it's so good. Um, but he wakes up, and what does he do? He bursts out, and this is you can't see it maybe in your English Bibles, you see how it's set apart, it's like indented, interestingly? Because it's a different genre. That, those, that verse in 23, when it gets to this at last is bone of my bones, Adam starts singing. He sees woman and starts singing. It's poetry. And he is delighted to see at last, this is the helper that is fit for me. Um, and so I've got to look up the... This quote that is, um, gosh, Hagar, you were in the Bible study. You remember that we talked about this a long time ago. Who is it? Uh, Matthew Henry. That's it. Matthew Henry quote on the creation of woman. It's so good. Please, Lord, that we find it. Yes. All right, we got it. Women were created. The woman was created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to topple him, nor from his feet. To be trampled on by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, to be near to his heart, and to be loved by him—that's pretty good. That was centuries ago. This guy wrote that, but that's that's pretty good. Why? Why is, that was a little? He, he doesn't talk about any of this in the book, but it's too good not to to talk about. Okay, so the goal in all of this is yes, there's some goals. Genesis one talks about procreation, so it's good to have children. That is a good goal and something our society, I think, probably the most radical thing people can do is, is have children today because they make a claim on your life. I talked about this last week. But there's another goal, the removal of the loneliness, that it was not good. God created marriage to fulfill, in some sense, this loneliness in the created task of ruling and subduing and being God's rulers in the world. So uh, those are just horizontal goals, though. There's still... It doesn't talk about the ultimate vertical goals of marriage. So, besides just children and not being lonely, you know, having a companion, those are great goals. But marriage has a far deeper meaning, which is what Keller gets at when he looks at Ephesians five—that it's this reflection of of God and to his uh, to his people. And interestingly enough, he Allender talks about in theological terms about the goals of it. He says marriage is meant to be. Uh, trinitarian, ethical, and eschatological. And he goes, now most people yawn significantly and are bored to tears when they hear theological language. So why does he choose? He knows he's doing this. Why does he do it? And he's trying to capture something that's really significant, that it is way bigger than just our own earthly companionship. There's something far more terrifying, far holier, far more awesome than just this human relationship. It's meant to transport us into the divine in some sense. And so when he's talking about um, the goal of marriage is to reveal God, it does it in three ways. It reveals God that he's trinity. Have you ever thought about, talk about a doctrine that can be obscure, but it's it's so important, is that God isn't just one. He's always been three in one. He's been relationship from the beginning, that before he even created, he had no need outside of himself. He didn't make us because he needed anything, but he was relationship for all eternity. That's the importance of the Trinity. And and what's amazing about marriage is it's kind of a a little glimpse into this relational truth that's always existed in God. All truth is relational. Marriage is meant to be relational. Uh, It's also supposed to show us the character of God. In a, in a marriage, you see God revealing his character. You see, on the one hand, that we fall way short of the goodness of God. And yet, we see when marriage captures something of what Keller talked about, this, this self-sacrificing love for the other, that is a proclamation to the world when you see a couple actually denying themselves and serving the other and how they speak, how they think, and what they do. That is a witness. It is a revelation of who God is. Uh, but more than that, it is also revealing eschatology, which is like end times. But it, eschatology can also mean ultimate things. So I love, and we'll end with this, and, and, um, at the end of the Bible, you know the, the metaphor that's used is a wedding feast. You get to the very end, and it's about a marriage. But this is what's so good news for people who never get married or who've lost a spouse, is you've actually, the real thing, the real substance of marriage, is something all Christians partake of in heaven. When, we, when the, the shadow fades away, we will find what the dim shadow of marriage pointed to, which was this relationship with God. And it's this wedding feast, and it's, he, Allender, I, just a heads up, anybody read the chapter on Allender? You did. Do you notice how sexual it was? Yes. He is a counselor psychologist and there's a reason that both of these books talk about sex and there's a point to it. Think about how we talk about the end of the age, the eschaton, the, the consummation, the climax of history. He says those are sexual terms and there's a reason that sexual intercourse and sexual, like an orgasm in particular, tells us something, right? It, it, it's not just being crass. This is a picture of Of the joy that was meant to be found in Jesus Christ that C.S. Lewis would say is like playing in a mud puddle because you can't envision what a holiday at the sea would be like. So take the highest joy of earthly existence, sexual union between a married couple, and it's like that's what God says and a small glimpse of what heaven itself will be like in relationship with God. So it does, it talks about sex, but that's the whole point of, of marriage is that all? This marriage relationship is is pointing towards something that's coming. It's pointing towards something that's greater, that's more delightful and satisfactory than even the greatest joy in marriage. So hopefully you get some of the point there. Dang, I ended at ten fifteen. That's awesome. Um, I didn't think I'd do that. So take with you discussion stuff. Um, we do. I will stick around. I'm gonna. Press pause on the recording, but we'll end right now. You can leave if you need to, or we can chat or ask questions if you want to. My feelings won't be hurt if everybody got up and left. It'd be okay. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a mystery it is. Marriage, what a terrifying, revealing, humbling, vulnerable thing to enter into. And yet, we, we long for it. Because it points us to this crazy picture of your love. Lord, I pray for those who um, long to be married or who have been married and maybe don't have a spouse anymore, uh, that your love would be made known tangibly to them to this day. And I pray for those who are in marriage as they are probably, as we talk about the purpose of marriage and see the, the heights of what we're called to be and we see just the depth of the depravity of our hearts. Lord, would your love in the face of our sin shut our mouths, cause us to fall down and worship you? And would it transform us to love just a little bit better those that you've entrusted to us to love? And I pray that those who are in marriage this day, in my own marriage, that you would um, help this indeed to be the school, the training ground for the eternity of joy that we were made for.